Hello and welcome to Real Bible Stories. Join us as we deep dive into the historical, religious, cultural, political, and emotional context surrounding the real lives of real people in the Bible and the stories we've all grown to love. Hello everyone and welcome back to Real Bible Stories. So this episode is going to be a part two of a two-part conversation or two-part study into Genesis 1. If you haven't heard part one, please pause right now, uh, go to the episode prior, and uh, take a listen to that, and then rejoin us here. So I'm your host, Imran Ward. My wife, Selena, is joining us alongside our teacher, Ryan Brown. And uh, it's part two of that discussion. Y'all have a wonderful day. Um, The thing they would say about the mythology between um, Egypt, Babylon, all the uh, the ancient Mesopotamian mythologies, the Sumerians, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Sumerians, the uh, Phoenicians, um, and how it relates to, you know, the Hebrew Bible, they'd be like, well, yeah, it's all the same elements. It's telling the exact same story. They said the what makes the Hebrew Bible unique, though, and this is the point, okay, I want you, this is the point. Is is that what why it follows the exact same storyline, the same narrative, the same elements, almost the exact same language in a sense of Egyptian mythology? The biggest thing that's missing is that it's just one God present speaking over the functions of what the other gods otherwise would have been called. So it's not that out of noon, Ra uttered his own name and spoke himself into existence as the God of light. Instead, it's Yahweh saying, let there be light. He doesn't say, let there be raw. You know what I'm saying? He mm-hmm. says, let there be light. The function that raw was. In other words, the primary thing that is being written, you know, um, in the structure of it, and when the story that's being told is kind of retelling the Egyptian mythology in a way that that is emphasizing, though, the functions of the gods, but not the gods. There's only one God. He's not doing battle. You know, a lot of the mythology is, you know, all these gods battling, like Babylonian tradition, the god Marduk, who's the god of the sea, ends up defeating the god of the land, and there's this whole drama behind it. Here, Mm -hmm. God says, God said, and it was so. Yeah, there's no competition. There's There's no no competition. There's no relationships with the god, like the Greek gods, like they've got like marriages, and there's the sub gods that came from like those primary prim- primary gods, and it's like it's none of that. It's just there's God spake, spoke these things into existence. These rules are in place because God said, you know, it will be so, and we are living in that result right. of that. Like last week, we talked about the um, that we shouldn't be uh, so hung up on the supernatural that we should also be amazed by the natural. We should just be incredibly appreciative of the fact that there are laws of physics Mm -hmm. laws of thermodynamics like that is in like by definition supernatural because things don't naturally stay in a structure but now remember though god is revealing things okay so what is being revealed here that we otherwise would not have known okay what is being revealed here to moses's original audience would not have known um they would not have known that God is not just one of many, what they would not have known is that there's only one, period. It's the first case of monotheism, okay? This is, um, it's huge, right? They're the only monotheistic belief now in that whole region. 
again, we miss it because we we don't live in that culture anymore. But why don't we live in a mono a polytheistic culture anymore? Because so long ago, God revealed to man that polytheism is stupid. And there's only one God, and that's grown into what it is now. You know, uh, in terms of not just uh, the Jewish faith, you know, kind of you know morphing into um, you know our our belief that Christ is the fulfillment of Jewish scripture, right? You know, I have a hard time separating Jews and Christians in the sense that we're, we're really, I mean, one and the same. We just you either accept Christ as the Messiah or not, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a continuation of it. But even Islam um, anchors much on Jewish and Christian um, thought and belief. And, yeah. that's, you know, see, it's, that's what I, when I, when I said earlier that like big three religions, uh, modern Christianity, Catholics, Christians, all the Protestant faiths, um, the Jews and the, and, and the Muslims are all based within the the abrionic religion like mm-hmm. that promise that god made to abraham is the foundation by which everything flows from and it's like there's so much difference in a lot of ways in how we interpret the ultimate end of the scripture but when you pull the strings back it's like we're we're worshiping the same god but what was revealed though and all those only exist the way they do and have the prevalence they do is because god had revealed so long ago to yeah. moses's audience of the concept of monotheism Okay, mm-hmm. we otherwise would not have come to that conclusion in their culture where they were. They would have believed him one of many gods, and they would have continued on. That's why I mean, the whole point is like uh, opening of the Ten Commandments: "I am the Lord your God." You will have no other gods before me. You know what I mean? Like it, it, I am it. I am it. He says, "I am a jealous God." When everything is is really painted in the Old Testament, like I said, of battle of the gods, like um, when they when when. David starts fighting the the um, um, the Philistines. I mean, there's one where it says that they held on to their idols and they were f- they fled and they threw all their idols on the floor. It makes a point. Um, they take the Ark of the Covenant uh, when it's captured temporarily and they they put it in their temple and um, the the idol statues crack and bow down before it. Right, all of it is just painting this idea that uh, there's only one God. I'm supreme overall. What I am and and who he is cannot be challenged. Okay, there's not going to be some other more equally, um, you know, or derivative God coming to challenge what he is doing. Everything that God that when God um, when he reveals it and he says, "This is my promise." No, I'm going to be faithful to it because I can't be thrown off that challenge. Nobody can come challenge me. Like he's there's there's no like man, I, you know, I really love you. Um, you know, Selena, you know, um, I want what's best for you. You don't have to worry about the fact, though, that another equally powerful God is coming to maybe knock him off that love. You know what I'm saying? He can't be challenged in that regard. Because remember, he's starting to set up, Moses is here to set up the um, the anchor for the Torah, for the law. Okay, mm-hmm. so understand what God is giving us. You know, what he's he's trying to set a foundation of what he is giving is not going to be challenged. It's not going to change. You need to anchor yourself on this law because it's not going to, no one's here to challenge him. It's him and only him. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the first pieces um, that is highly being, I think is being highly emphasized here in Genesis one is that um, not just that it's beautiful, but that he can't be challenged. And the fact that he can't be challenged makes it beautiful. Right. Could you imagine how stressful it is being in a polytheistic culture? where 
um, you know, you 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 worship one God, you worship another God, I worship another God, and one of us hopefully like our God favors us more than the other, or our gods are fighting each other, and I hope my God wins. And because if my God doesn't win, I'm screwed. <laughs> Could you imagine the stress that would have in in, in terms of faith and, and life? Right? He's like, nope. There's only one. He can't be challenged, and he's going to start making promises that you need to um, um, adhere to and, and be faithful in as well. So he's the undisputed champion, right? That's kind of like the big point is that it's not that um, he. Because also understand what he what is not being said either, and the differences in, in that in Genesis one, he is not saying in God created raw. Okay, God, he did not say God created raw and and um, and then raw came. What he says is God created light. Mm-hmm. It's the function that raw was the God of, right? So he's saying like it's not even that like um, I am the God over raw. He's saying. I wasn't the, even a thing. Ra's not even a thing. I am the God, and I am the God over every function that all those gods functionally belong to. You had a God of light. I'm the God of light. You had a God of the water. I'm the God of the water. You had a God of um, the plants and the land. I'm the God of the plants and the land. I am the God of overall, right? Monotheistic. That That, that is really the, the big emphasis of Genesis 1. Um, but we like to talk, but what about photosynthesis, right? Like, Poetic prose, historical context, what is trying to be revealed and, and communicated well, and emphasized. To that, to right? the, those um, people that were coming out of uh, Egypt. And, and just like, you know, last week we talked about the, uh, you know, Matthew 2 and the star, you know, and kind of like Hellenistic astrology and kind of how God kind of leveraged that sense of belief to drive them closer to him. You see the same thing happening here. He's leveraging a belief system of mythology He's using what they already know to paint to them and teach them what they don't know um, and correct it in the same way, right? So he's saying, let me take the, the, the mythology, that, that that story that you know, because they would have picked up on the differences. They would have been realized like, okay, so out of Ra didn't utter his own name out of the existence of Noon. No, God was. He said, that's how you have light. You know, yeah. they would have been able to pick up, and that's how he's being discipled. He's using Moses is using what they already knew, but by showing them the differences, that's how they're starting to understand mm-hmm. the the relationship and the reality of what's happening, right? So it's not just like, well, how do I know that's true? Well, that same God just parted the red uh, the sea for you and brought you to safety out of Egypt. He just brought you out of Egypt, and you saw the incredible things he did. You know, he's God over the elements. Right, and we'll we'll talk about the plagues of Egypt at some point because much of that same element is there. I mean, another good example, you know, I guess I talked about, um, I had spoken about it before with um, um, earlier with Moses, um, and even how, uh, but being the prince of Egypt. But if you remember, you know, it said that the Hebrews were becoming too many. Egypt was kind of concerned that. Um, they were going to start overpowering in terms of numbers and yeah. take over. So he calls for all the slaughtering of the babies and um, he wanted to kind of put an end to the, you know, the, the growth that they had. Um, so Moses escapes in the basket, goes down the Nile. As he's going down the Nile, um, the princess 
sees him in the basket, pulls him in, adopts her as his own. He becomes a prince of Egypt, raised as a prince of Egypt, and that's exactly um, – he ends up killing one of the Egyptian officers, goes on the run, right? That's that whole drama of Exodus, okay? But um, a big piece of that is, well, why did she – you know, I, I think because we like to fill in the gaps, we get this idea that that Egyptian princess is seeing this baby Moses, this Hebrew, and it's like, I'm just in love with it. I got to keep him, right? And goes, Daddy, I want to keep this baby. Like, they obviously <laughs> had no empathy or sympathy for those children. They're slaughtering them or at least by the, the thousands. At least the king did not. The pharaoh, right? Yeah, the pharaoh. It's his daughter, right? The, she, they were of the same, I mean, let, let's be honest, right? Like, the, it's, um, you know, like, it, I'm not going to use, that'll be a comparison for another time. But the point is, is that it wasn't out of empathy that she ins- saved him, because this mm-hmm. is the thing we miss. And we kind of have to ask the question, why was she bathing in the Nile to begin with? Like, you, you're a princess. Like, the Nile, I mean... Great water source, um, food source of fish. It's also where you threw all your feces. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, as a yeah, because royalty river, it's running. So yeah, royalty had carries baths. all that stuff away. They had bathhouses. They had you know servants to come bring in water and heat it up. And so why was she there? Well, the god of the Nile was the god of fertility. So why do you think she's there in the Nile? Uh, she's trying to have a kid, or maybe struggling to have a kid. She's probably struggling having a child. She's there probably praying to the God of fertility by submersing herself. And then what comes coming down the river? A baby. A whole, a, a whole child. A baby in a basket. The God of fertility. Here's your baby. You see what I'm saying? Um, so it's not out of sympathy for, you know, Moses himself or of the Hebrew baby. It was out of a answered prayer to the God of the Nile. She goes and says, I prayed for this. I'm having a hard time giving a baby. And this is what the gods gave me. We can't kill him. That's what saved Moses and made him a prince of Egypt while maintaining it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so, again, that is another example of God using someone's belief to push his will and and, and ultimately um, accomplish his end. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, because that He's not saying that the God of the Nile is real, yeah. but the fact that he is God of the Nile. He's, he's God, God of everything. Of, mm-hmm. He's the God of everything. He's God of the Nile. He drives it pushes it within their belief to ultimately accomplish his will, right? It's really, really interesting. And I think much of that is what's happening here. I, I would really like for us to actually go into the plagues eventually because um, I, something I always struggle with is uh, all these things are happening. And uh, like the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's like these awful, awful things are happening, but it's like it specifically notes in there that God hardened his heart. There, there's a point where he, he specifically comes in and says stop because like, I'm ultimately got to show my supremacy over your gods. Um, and but we'll, we'll get there. That that is actually yeah. we'll we'll do that week. Um, because we we only have a little bit of time, and I just want to hit these last few lenses. Um, the the next lens is the Hebraic lens. Okay, so when we read it, you know we like to stick the theology and science. Well, what's here's the historical lens. This is the mythology of Egypt and what the differences are and what's being communicated. Here's the literary, right? It's poetic. It's beautiful. But thinking Hebraically, um, the use of sevens, um, you know, I think many already know, but, you know, the, you, the number seven in Hebraic thought is represents completeness. Something's complete. 
Um, but it's also, I, I think, what we miss in, in terms of the words that are used. So, so Moses is following the same like narrative as Egyptian mythology, but there are there's also other things that are there that aren't, um, or, or the words he uses is, is, is different. So, for example, where um, noon recedes and retreats, so Geb can come in. You got the separation of you know land and water. Um, Moses uses a word mikvah, and mikvah translated in Greek is baptismo, which translated to um, English is baptism. Okay. okay. The very first baptism, the first mikvah, is in Genesis one. You see it again with Noah. There's a mikvah. There's a big gathering of water. Okay. Noah was like a mikvah of the planet. Okay. We'll get that in a good time too. Um, but any time God goes into covenant with anybody, there is a mikvah. So when you start looking at that, another th- element of uh, the covenant making process is a symbol. You give a symbol. Um, if you notice in day four, plants uh, puts the, the stars in the sky, right? And he says, um, these will be for signs and seasons. He gives them a sign. He gives them a symbol, right? Um, the point of that is that what you really gather as the language, I guess you could say Moses is using as defined later throughout the rest of the Torah is one of God making a covenant with creation. So it's not just that there's no other God or um, agent with its own independent will outside of God who could come in and challenge him, but even within the internal character of God himself, if God says he's going to do it, he's not going to change his mind. Let's see. You see, that's being communicated. So the original audience says, hey, stop going to all these other gods and goddesses that are not there. There's only one God who's God over all of that. He can't be challenged, and he's making a covenant with creation that, you know, through the process that he's going, that um, he is committed to it, that same God who made that covenant within his own character won't change his mind, made a covenant with your forefathers, that he's going to deliver you out of Egypt, he's going to give you a land. That land's going to be called Israel, right? Ultimately to the purpose of the next land, which is the Christocentric lens, viewing this through the lens of Christ. Christ says not a jot nor a tittle will um, pass away um, until it is fulfilled, right? He says, all scripture testify about me. So how is all how is Genesis 1 testifying to Christ? This is the other question you should be asking. What is God revealing? But how is this bearing testimony, particularly of the Old Testament, I think, for us? Yeah. How does this text testify to Christ and point towards him? Okay. Um, I would throw out there, I think it's John 1, 1, where it's, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Just sliding that right right in there. That's what I thought of when you mentioned that. There you go. You got it, right? So, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you see right there, he's using the same, John, in the Gospel of John, is using the same language of Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. But what is he painting Christ as in Genesis 1? It's like there at the same time, or at least at the same rank. He was with uh, God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in so in John one, he, he's painting this in uh, terms of Genesis one, right? Who does he paint Christ as in Genesis one? The light. The light. Okay, the light. Um, when later, when Jesus is with his disciples, they're going on their way after Lazarus dies. They're afraid. They're like, we just came from there. They're trying to kill you there, right? And what Jesus says something very interesting. He says, as long as you walk in the day, you will not trip or stumble. But the day's not always going to be with you. When night comes, that's when you trip and stumble. And as he, that whole narrative, what Jesus does is he assigns himself as the day. Okay? So you have this association to the light and the day. Now, when you read Genesis 1, what anchors the entire text of Genesis 1? It's the light. It is the light that defines everything. Okay? In the beginning was, um, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. He separated light from the darkness. The light he called evening, the the or, or, or uh, the light he called day, the darkness he called um, evening, right? Called night. Or night. So what defines light and day? Well, it's the light of Genesis 1. And it's that same light or that same night and day that is mm-hmm. order, disorder, that is defining each of the other create, creative acts that happen throughout that, to which um, John later then centers Christ as the center of. You see, you track what I'm saying? Yeah. Christ is the center of Genesis 1. Because he, the light is the center of Genesis 1, and Christ is the light, as according to John, right? But Scripture interprets Scripture. So um, the other piece with that, then, is that um, Christ is the center of, of not just creation, but ultimately God's purpose. Okay? So um, that's one thing that you need to vastly consider, right? Um there's other points too here, though. Like we didn't even, um, we're not gonna have time. But you know, he's ultimately speaking in in terms of he uses a lot of prophetic language, a dawning light, um, the spirit. Did you know? This will throw you off too. But did you know that every time God reveals something, whether it's a prophecy. Um, coming on a prophet who speaks a prophecy uh, um, or or anything. Um, every single time in the Old Testament um, that occurs, the Spirit of God comes on them. Um, right here in Genesis 1, to not view this through the lens of a revelatory or prophetic lens with the Spirit of God, it would be the only instance in the Old Testament where that wouldn't be true of. You see what I'm saying? Mm. Um, so there's this deep revelatory prophetic element behind the language used as well. Um, so, and within that, well, what is he revealing then? And he kind of place that within the larger context of the rest of Genesis 1 through 5. We'll talk about it. Um, I think we're going to talk about Cain and Abel. That'll be a fun one. But there's a lot of, but, but the point is, is that Genesis 1 is within the, a set of Genesis two through five and two through five is painting creation as a, um, as a temple. Um, like the garden of Eden, for example, mm-hmm. was the first temple. Um, it's what the tabernacle was based off of. It's what the temple was based off of all of the symbology and imagery that was in the tabernacle. And then the temple was there to replicate Eden. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we'll get that in good time. 
but this belongs within that set. So one of the things that is that God is kind of communicating in this, if you read it as a set with the rest of everything that comes after it, is that he's creating a home. The whole point is that God is creating a home here. When you look at the end of Revelation, how does Revelation end? God coming and establishing here, his throne here, right? The whole story is one of heaven and God's space coming and perfectly intersecting with our space on earth. Yeah. Um, and, and the point is, is that he has identified and made an election that planet earth is going to be the place that is going to be like his, almost like his, uh, we call it the cosmic temple, if you will. Here is where he is going to rest. Within the entire universe, he has made that election, right? And that's why you start, uh, you see the charges of go tame and, and um, take care of this earth. Why? Because this is going to be God's home. So when you look at things like littering, it's like, um, or environmentalism, right? Among Christians, it's like, if we understood the idea that, you know, God's trying to establish a home here, and I don't know how that all works because he also brings in the, you know, a new earth and a new heaven. Mm-hmm. And, but I do know that he charges us though to take care of this place because he charges um, us in Genesis one, right? To take end. care of this place for a reason that he's like, I'm going to establish my throne there. So you're, you're, you know, I don't know what that all that's going to look like. Of course. All I know is what he told us to do. Um, so, you know, concepts like, you know, just simply littering. I'm like, oh, that's what you think of God's footstool? God's like co- cosmic temple. That That's his temple. That, that's that's how you treat it, right? And um, so that's an environmental thing. But but the point, though, is that as that's getting revealed, though, in, in a lot of the prophetic language of, that, of what's getting revealed is one with any larger set. You know, we had talked about the the theological um, precedence that it sets, you know, the Imago Dei being created in the image of God. Um, This is just a really important theological concept, because if you notice, God creates all these domains, right, or or spaces. He creates, um, you know, that you got heaven and earth, you got sky, you got water, you got land and water, right? He creates all these spaces and domains, and out of those domains, is what he he fills them and calls out of those domains to fill them. Meaning this, out of the sky, he called the birds. Out of land, he called animals. Out of um, um, this, um, gosh, I was having a brain fart right now. The, uh, see, skies, bird, what am I missing? Um, well, anyways. So out of the land. Out of water. The there we go. Goodness. Light. Water. Go. Goodness. Getting the seas. Um, out of the water, he creates, you know, um, sea creatures. But then when it comes to man, what does he use? He doesn't call us out of um, the land or the water or the sky. What does he call call us out of? Out of the dust, out of the earth itself. Oh, no, out of no, his no, image. No. Out well, of his, his image. In his image. Out of his image, right? Okay. Out of all. So he uses all the domains of. Um, so you got. Uh, sea, you know, earth, um, the sky, and then there's one of heaven, us, right? Out of his image, we were created. The Imago Dei is a very important theological concept to understand the fact that we were created out of his own image, out of his own character. That's what makes us unique over anything else. You, you could say, you know, sort of bi- uh, physically, uh, biologically, genetically, you know, whatever your view of how that physically manifested itself in creation you need we need to understand the purpose and also the character into which we were created out of 
was being called out of the character of God, unlike where everything else was created out of elements of, of the earth. We're the only ones that were created um, and called out of the character of who God is. I see. Um, you know, so when, when you get, it's not, so those theological presents are important, but again, eisegesis, I don't necessarily take a theological camp and read it into the text. What I need to do is just study that text and pull out of, does that reinform my theological camp, right? And one of the things that we see is, okay, being created out of the image of God, that's a big deal. Um, the fact that it's written poetically, so this is meant to be beautiful, he can't be challenged. In his own character, he's going to be faithful. Um, all those elements, right, is, is really that big message behind Genesis 1, which is that there is a God who stands alone, who can't be challenged, who in his own character is good and will remain faithful. Nothing's going to be able to thwart him. Right. And, and he has an ultimate purpose for creation and for us that he's trying to fulfill. Right. Much of, um, I think not just humanity, but a believer's walk is one where God's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, whether we're on it or not. This is a hard concept. I think many modern Americans, you know, I think we're going, I don't know. I'll, I'll say it now, but God does not need us. What a concept. He chooses to use us. He wants us, but he does not need us. Yeah. No. There's a big difference, right? Um, in fact, I think there is something more beautiful in, in the sense of, lo- in, in terms of love and God's love for us when you do something for somebody and not expecting anything in return because we don't need, he doesn't need us. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, which it makes it more beautiful because he's doing it because he wants to do out it. Out of love, not yeah. out of necessity, because he's not like, ah, gosh, man, they really screwed up. I need to go down there, redeem them, because if I don't redeem them, I can't accomplish my will. Therefore, let me go redeem them. Let me go die for them. You know, it's no. He doesn't, he didn't need to do any of that. Yeah. He did that because he loved us and he wants us. Which is right. What we call grace and mercy. Right. You know, that, that's, you know, that's, this, you know, um, but my point with that though is that one of the things that when, when you, when you really read Genesis one that we should be pulling away is that he's big. No one can challenge him. He has a phenomenal character, but he created this and us with a purpose to fill. And we have the privilege to participating with him in accomplishing those things, right? Ultimately, he's trying to reveal to him, you, you have a, a purpose. You were created for a purpose to meet that end. Yeah. Um, so like you are my chosen people that will fulfill right. my purpose. And you know, like, there's all oh, these elections sad. God and choices God's, God makes, right? He kind of made planet Earth. That was his, like his first election of it. All the cosmos, he chose this one little rock in the middle of nowhere, right? The 29 palms of the galaxy. And he... It uh, is, though. Right, like not even the center, not even close to the center no. of the galaxy. <laughs> he he chose Milky Way's not even close to the center of the universe. <laughs> he he chose the Bethlehem of the cosmos, planet Earth, right? Yeah, and then within that, he chose a species of his creation. You know, human beings he made a special election. You're going to be the ones created in my image. You're going to be the ones created to act as my servants and agents of worship, as representatives and ambassadors of creation, right? Um, and then within that, he says, you, um, Israel, are going to be my, or Hebrews, you're going to be my chosen people to establish a holy nation to which my Messiah is going to come through, right? Um, all th- these elections he was making all for this ultimate um, purpose and end state that we can either choose to be a part of 
or we can choose to reject. Um, because the other last one, if I could just say, because I know we're already a little bit over, but um, uh, depending on how this goes, I might split it into two parts. We'll uh, see. Or we'll see. But yeah, uh, the but, message is more important than so, the time it takes. Because the last it. thing I want everybody to kind of take from this is read Genesis one's message personally, because it should generate some personal responsibility in you. So I, this is kind of a fun one, but read Genesis one, but remove all the nouns that are in Genesis 1 with me, like the, the word me, right? So in the beginning, God created me. I was formless. I, I was without purpose. I was without direction. But then God said, let there be light in my life. Who is the light that he gave in my life? According to John, that's Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Let there be light in my life. And there was light. And that he separated light from darkness within me. And you start reading through and you take this personal responsibility because it's, it's really a, oh my goodness. a personal um, extension of what he is, what is being communicated ultimately for the entire extension of humanity in Genesis 1. That okay. there is a God sovereign above all of that. There's a God above you, right? There is a God more powerful than you. There, there is a God who has a character who is much more deeper and, and intimately faithful than you, right? That there is a God who created you for a purpose and you with an identity and you um, for a reason to accomplish a certain end. All that, like the, the larger dichotomy that you see of what Genesis 1 plays for creation applies to you personally, right? Um, and there's personal responsibility we have to it. But what we do is we read this and we should find, look at it beautifully, right? Um, we talked about with... Uh, the Christmas story with Luke, the joy, right? There's a beauty. There's a joy that should come in within us. Instead, what we do is we say, yeah, but Ryan, how did, how did he create it in six days? And how old is the earth? And, you know, well, it's you see how silly it sounds now to me to de- debate and, and, and spend millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, of trying to prove or disprove to people the age of the earth over something where he's like, that's not even the point. The point is yeah. there's a... God who is sovereign over all things, who has made promises to you to make, yeah, to accomplish a certain purpose and mission. Are you a part of that or are you not? I am. Um, it, sh- it should scare you. It should excite you. It should uh, move you to response and action because it's revealing things not just within, you know, theologically, but personally within yourself. But instead we make, we make it a hill about science. Because if I could just say a word about that. Let's just assume for a second that God made us with a brain who's capable of doing good science. And let's just say in that capability, we have determined, yeah, we think, you know, uh, the age of, of the planet is about, you know, 6 billion years old and um, the age of the universe is probably about 14 billion years old. And let's say that is correct because we did good science, right? Because that's not, maybe not what he's revealing to us in Genesis 1. You see what I'm saying? Why does it matter? I'm not saying that um, it was six days. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm saying it's kind of irrelevant to the point that is being communicated in Genesis 1 and the, the function... Com- the conversation that Moses is having with those people. Right. What he is conveying to them. And, and what is important about Genesis 1 as an anchor has nothing to do about time and science. It has everything to do about um, where it sets in terms of setting is, the authority and sovereignty and purpose yeah. throughout the rest of the gospel story. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? 
And, and when you and it is like the foundation, of, like you said, of the rest of the tour, where it is that um, monotheistic, God ver- uh, yeah, God versus all the other gods, uh, com- continually establishing himself as I am the only God. Like, right. This all this other stuff is you know, and and me. a lot of people may ask then, well, okay, so is it true or is it not? Genesis one. It's like, well, yes, God made creation. I just don't think that Genesis one is highlighting. Um, the science of how God did that. What he is highlighting, I think, is he's using a context of mythology in the community for the 400 years they were there that was probably really prevalent within them, and he's using that to tell a story of truth that is very true, which is that there's only one sovereign God um, overall. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I know I didn't give any resolution to the, the time debate, of days and, and things. You did yeah. though. The resolution is that that it's not worth the argument. It, it is certainly not. It is certainly to me. It is certainly not worth making it a hill or, or giving it an emphasis that somebody who may be open to the gospel or, or may be curious about the gospel or Christians or bearing witness or, or maybe receptive to it. Then we make that a thing that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Yeah, because that's what we've kind of done. I um, mean, we've done that, and maybe not inadvertently, but um, kind of inadvertently, we may we've set up all these apologetics trying to prove how the Earth can only be six thousand years old. But there's even problems with that. I mean, when you read the like, read it, it says, um, "In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth." Now, the Earth was formless and void. It doesn't say it was non-existent. It the whole narrative actually starts off with the assumption that Earth is already there. It's just without purpose and directionless, right? But it's already there. Um, when you start speaking about time, like, okay, I mean, maybe it is literal six days, maybe it's not. I mean, there's a lot of views on that. Got the Wiseman theory where each day is representative of a day of revelation, meaning each day um, was a point to which Moses received the revelation. So day two, I received this revelation which is that God oh, separated, interesting. right? That's interesting. Point. That, that's that's the Wiseman theory, um, and, and it was revealed that way because it's paired up with like the Babylonian um, mythology is written on um, seven tablets, so you got seven days instead with twenty-seven verses, which is real short and concise. Another big difference with the Hebrew version versus everybody else. But but the point is is that um, you know you got Wiseman theory, you got John, you know Doctor Lennox who he wrote a book called. Uh, Seven days that divided the world. He is a he has a master's of divinity, like a master's of mathematics. He's also like, like a PhD in um, biology and a PhD in this dude's just brilliant. Um, um, love studying him. He wrote a book though, Seven Days That Divided the World. He what he presents forward in that book is one that each one of those is a creative day, meaning when God separated you know the sky from the land that all occurred in one day. But it doesn't necessarily mean this was chronological of day after day, meaning, so there was one day, mm-hmm. creative day, there was a lot of time in between, and then there was another creative day. But he's a scientist, so he's viewing this very scientifically. I think it's mm-hmm. an error he makes. He vastly overemphasizes the science behind it and I think undervalues the, revela- the revelatory the re- emphasis of, of well, the original audience and what they would know. Yeah, I want to let Selena jump yeah, in. Well, I see her eyebrows how do you, Yeah, what do you? <laughs> how do you go about the Sabbath day? 
because it goes back to like, well, God rested on the seventh day. Is it just important to know like us humans, we need to rest on the like God's word. And that's why it's kind of going back to like God. Well, rested, first off, right? no, notice that the seventh day never ends in Genesis one. If you were to read it, uh-huh. it never closes. All the other ones, there's an evening, there's a morning, right? Day seven, now on the seventh day, it never closes. Mm. Right? So that's mm. something you just have to answer for if, if you're looking at a literal view of, of the days is that, well, how do you make sense of that, right? Um, but to your point about the Sabbath is there, he says, as... Oh, I can read that, the um this the Sabbath part, if you want. Well, I was going to say is later that because much of the Sabbath is anchored on the fact that you're to remember the Sabbath because of creation, right, and what's mm-hmm. being communicated. But the point of the whole Sabbath, though, if you, if you read, was you know you remember it. It's not something that was created in the law. It's something that occurred back at creation. It's something you remember. The the just as God had rested, right. So what does that mean? It means to um, when, when it says God rested, it says that He looked over all that He saw and He saw that it was good. Like the Sabbath is supposed to be a day that where we, we just reflect on God's character, God's creation, what, everything God's done, that we slow down from the elements of life that distract us of trying to make money and get ahead and, you know, even uh, doing daily chores of keeping up with laundry and yard work, right? That we just take a time, we carve it out in the week, and we say, I will not forget, and I will remember why I am here, who you are. And why we do what we do, right? And 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 that's exactly when when you look at um, God taking a rest on on day seven, as He looks back and He says He looked over all of that He saw and it was good. It was good. We um, you know we talked a while ago, I guess not a few weeks ago on it, but uh, it was mentioned that we as adults don't revel and like really um, think about how awesome creation is and how the natural state is and how incredible that is where whereas a child is just impressed and uh continue continuously just like um has like a love of learning of all the simple things that are out there in the world and and we as adults like always need to be entertained always need to be filled up with something because we get bored with like the natural state but when you actually sit down take a moment to rest take a moment to reflect take a moment to meditate that that in and of itself can be revealing. And you know um, what else we do that with? The Bible. Yeah. It's the same way. I mean, if you, if you look as a an adult, when, when you first hear, you ever see a child the first time they hear the, the story of Jesus? I mean, the, when you see them like almost literally cry tears when they see him, you know, um, a depiction of him getting crucified and asking why, you know, why he, mm-hmm. Jesus is, you know, but then seeing their joy when they see the tomb rolled and he's not there and then he sees him walking up and rose again. And these kids are just like overflown, uh, overflowing with just joy, right? Yeah. They see that and they experience that. And we, we used to have that. And we used to have that when we read, um, you know, part of what I talked about is, you know, taking some of the Sunday school stories and make them more for adults. Like I also want to kind of reinvigorate on, on a mature adult level, a passion and a joy to going back and studying your Bible because it's, it's beautiful, right? There's so much here. Um, one, I hope like, you know, a week like this, you know, what we talked about probably offended a lot of people. Great. You know, go get in your Bible, study it, prove me wrong. Get in and start studying. You know what I mean? Like, 
whatever you need to motivate yourself to go, um, you know, study scripture and start diving into the depths and the, the beauty that it's there. Right. Um, cause, cause, um, we do forget, we come numb to it. We then start having our own impressions on this is what it means. So we start reading it with those impressions into it. So we're already reaching the conclusion before we even start reading at the beginning. And there's just no, it becomes boring. It becomes stale. It becomes, um, un, unfruitful for us. Right. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, anyways, um, you know, I think, uh, this is one of those fun ones. I probably left more questions than answers. However, I think, good. I think a lot of those different literary, uh, all those different contexts, right? The literary, the historical, you can't ignore them. You can't ignore the poetic structure. You can't ignore the historical parallels. Um, when you, when you look at the story of Egypt and the story of, um, the Bible and creation, right? It's more in the differences that, that seem to be the message, right? Um, cause that's really what it is. It's, it's a lot of this is the same, but what's key is the difference. And that's kind of the point that I think Moses is making. Uh, but you can't ignore the Hebraic view. And, and, you know, there's so many different lenses that you read it through and you draw these different points from, you can't ignore them. Um, now you, you could keep going at it from the sense of science, but um, I think that's one of those where you're already approaching it from a view that you don't really want to be discipled or taught. What you're probably doing is going through it because you're trying to prove a point. Mm-hmm. And you're already, I think, outside of the, the spirit of, of what Scripture is there to do. You're not in the humility of it. You need to approach Scripture humbly, right? And um, that's when you learn, but that's also when your heart changes, so... Anyways, uh, this one was kind of a hefty one. There's, there's actually a lot that we didn't cover. Um, cause like I said, it is one of the hardest, absolutely and we, the we, hardest. We will have the time to revisit, uh, this stuff. And as we talk about different stories in the Old Testament, we can, we will arc back to these different elements because they, they are, it's, as you said, um, uh, scripture, right. Yeah. It's scripture revealing scripture. And it's like, it's, it's going to come back up again and again. Yep. And in the future, we'll probably sit down and do a, a deeper dive into one or two of these concepts. Yeah, yeah I think that'd be fun. So, so, and I love this. Does your head hurt? Yeah, oh, but in like the best of ways. So, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for uh, listening in through all of this um, over the last two weeks. And uh, truly appreciate it. And I hope to you know, see you all next week uh, listening into us again. God bless. Thank you for tuning in to Real Bible Stories. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to be notified each week when we upload new episodes. Real Bible Stories is produced in part by Palms Church in 29 Palms, California. If you would like more information or want to check out archived sermons and Bible studies, please check out the church website at palmsbaptistchurch.com or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Real Bible stories can be found wherever podcasts are found. Thank you again, and we will see you next week.